Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. After a couple of notices, if it's okay uh, with all of you, I will reflect on the latest BBC saga involving Hugh Edwards and the Sun newspaper and social media and explore some of the wider themes that arise from it and challenge some of the kind of mythologies that have already uh, begun to take shape around it. Uh, Crises involving the BBC tend to but like in a lot of political crises, uh, generate instant kind of assumptions and orthodoxies that if you step back, prove to be wrong. Um, so I'll be reflecting on that. And uh, then very briefly, a couple of questions from you. We'll, we'll delve deep on other matters early next week when we get together again. So just a couple of uh, notices. Uh, for Patreon subscribers of Rock and Roll Politics, there's a chance for us all to get together live on Monday, July the 24th. I think it's at seven o'clock, uh, but the link is in the Patreon uh, version of Rock and Roll Politics. Uh, that, of course, is the Monday after those three by-elections, which will be a moment of some significance on uh, uh, Thursday of next week. And then we'll all get together on Monday, July the 24th, if you can make it, and it will be uh, recorded so Patreon subscribers who can't make it can see it later. And then the Edinburgh Festival, uh, live from August the 13th, Rock and Roll Politics Live. I spoke to someone the other day, so we, we might do a day trip from London to see it. That'd be a very early train because I'm live at 11 in the morning through my choice, actually then the day is clear for the festival. But um, anyway, do book and the link for those shows will be on the blurb for this podcast and of course, the Edinburgh Festival uh, Fringe website. Now, the BBC drama uh, that um, has been sucking up so much uh, of the media space in recent days. Um, it's interesting, uh, just kind of personal thing that happened to me. I did the live show on Tuesday, a big packed audience. And on the way up to the show, I was thinking to myself, right, I must remember not to mention the name of the BBC presenter because at that point the name hadn't been revealed and, uh, yeah, can't do it uh, and be disciplined, don't mention it because by then I knew who it was. Um, and it was interesting. There was not a single question on it uh, and it was raging by then, um, you know, taking up half a bulletin on the BBC, a lot of the Today programme and uh, leading every newspaper and Twitter erupting. Now, that was partly because we were delving deep that night um, and we were delving into the rhythms of politics in a way that kind of hopefully uh, kind of gripped us. And therefore, this kind of story would have seemed a bit peripheral in the context of the epic dramas we were exploring. But I did think it was interesting there wasn't a single question on it. And it is a reminder that though there are elements to this story that are compelling and interesting, those in the media tend to find media stories more gripping than those on the outside. And those in the BBC tend to find BBC stories more gripping than those who are not in that um, intoxicating 
space. And even this one, which, of course, had the ingredients in some respects of a dark soap opera and uh, mystery because the person had not been named, um, I, I, I sense it, it kind of gripped the media uh, more than it gripped those outside that milieu. What else can we learn from this uh, sad drama? First of all, uh, one of the myths, I think, is that um, it was driven by social media. Um, it's almost the opposite. Uh, it was an old-fashioned but familiar sequence. Uh, it was driven by a newspaper, The Sun, um, who began this uh, sequence by putting a BBC presenter on the front page uh, in a way that couldn't have been more dramatic. And they put it on the front page every day. And it is a reminder that old-fashioned newspapers have the power to drive the agenda and to scare the BBC. Um, as I commented recently during the whole Lineker furore, the intensity of it was driven by the Telegraph and the Mail who put the Lineker story on their front pages. Uh, the Today programme immediately followed it by asking every political interview they had on that day on other issues about the Lineker affair, and on it went. Again, driven by newspapers, not social media. And, you know, one of uh, the members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, White Van Driver Andy. Now, he is our kind of media correspondent, and one of his duties, Andy... It's one of your duties, is uh, he, he kind of clocks how BBC online uh, stories change depending on what's on the front of the mail and, and the prominence given to a story on the mail, and then it can go higher up on the BBC online. So I, the so, social media, of course, has been a player in this, but it, it's, it's like a sort of noisy Greek chorus social media and twitter it's interesting you know people were screaming for the name to be given of the bbc presenter from day one but they didn't succeed actually and even though the name was out there on social media and you could find it if you wanted to and no doubt those of you who follow twitter would have known the name it didn't formally come out and uh, so social media is a sort of noisy, screaming place. But newspapers still, I think, have the power to drive an agenda and to do it in whatever way they choose to do it. And The Sun did it by citing the mother and stepfather of the original young person who was involved in all of this and didn't mention the fact that the young person's lawyer had been in touch to say the allegations of the parents were rubbish. And so they put a particular slant on the story, suggested the possibility of criminality without asserting it wholly, of course. And that got the whole thing going. Uh, unsurprisingly, it got the whole thing going. Who was this person, etc., etc. And I think it is a reminder of the ongoing power of newspapers. Uh, I'm afraid they're going to go for Starmer in the run-up to the election. It's one of the big differences with uh, the build-up to 1997. So they were getting 
all kinds of endorsements Labour in 1997, which won't happen this time round, in spite of uh, Starmer pursuing a new Labour 1997 strategy. And this is one of the other things that has a familiar air to it. A lot of uh, people on Twitter and uh, media commentators have said, why did the BBC devote so much time to this story? You know, half the 10 o'clock news on it, two days running. If if there was the, an outbreak of World War Three, there would be less time on it. Um, Part of the answer is that uh, BBC is heavily influenced by the newspaper agenda. I spoke to someone very close to uh, uh, Gary Lineker recently who told me that um, they were horrified at the degree to which uh, Tim Davies' actions uh, in relation to the Lineker business had been, in effect, kind of dictated to by the mail and an attempt to appease the mail. And off we go again. Uh, the Sun run with it, the Mail run with it, uh, the Telegraph run with it, and, and, and the BBC are off kind of uh, following it. It happened, if you remember, with um, Keir Starmer during the whole Durham Gate thing when there was an investigation as to whether he had broken lockdown rules. He hadn't. Uh, but during the investigation, the Mail put it on the front page day after day, and uh, the BBC in the end started covering the story. So I don't think it tells us much about the power of social media. It tells us about the power of newspapers and to go for it in whatever way they choose to do so. And in this issue of accountability, uh, which is the key of all that's wrong with Britain, who's accountable for railways, about 10,000 different agencies, so no one is. Um, at the BBC, there are issues about accountability, but at least the Director General is accountable. Some of the managers are hidden under uh, layers of complex hierarchy, so they are not accountable, and that's a big issue. Uh, but the Director General always is, and uh, Tim Davey has been out and about. He's spoken about it at a press conference. He's given an interview. Where is the editor of The Sun? No interview, no newspaper has directly involved, uh, come out, and it's always the same. You know, you never hear from Paul Dacre or these people. So there is this issue of how much they can get away with, even in this post-Leveson era. And some will say, well, they weren't able to name the person. And um, sure, but in a way that kind of, I think, heightened the interest in this uh, story, the anonymity. I've always been fascinated by Bob Dylan never giving interviews. And I think it's given him an enigma that has made him more fascinating. And sometimes his lyrics are actually quite banal. They're sort of kind of rhyming couplets of a 14-year-old. But because he's never given any interviews, there's a sort of mystery. And the anonymity of the presenter intensified the interest in some respects. But anyway, another myth is, um, oh, the social media exposed the name and the name was out there and it would be much better for the presenter to have come out right at the beginning of this. I think that's rubbish, actually. What the anonymity, uh, which arose after the BBC in that mad other episode where they hired a helicopter over Cliff Richard's house, um, there's now a sort of anonymity uh, allowed when people are under potential investigation. 
Anyway, if that hadn't been the case, Hugh Edwards' name would have been out there. He would have been doorstepped. He would have probably had to have done an interview with Amal Rajan where he talked about all these things and, you know, probably in tears. It had just been unbearable. So the anonymity did work uh, to some extent, even if the name was out there. And uh, I can understand why he chose to remain anonymous for a few days until, of course, it became unsustainable. I mean, he wasn't on the 10 o'clock news and all the other presenters were ruling themselves out on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, but I think it was a bit self-indulgent of Jeremy Vine to cry for him to put the name out there uh, on the basis that other presenters were being called out on Twitter as being the potential presenter. Um, you know, Twitter is just a noise and, and they, there's no need to get too worked up about it. So I think the kind of anonymity thing is a good thing and did give some space in the madness for him and his family to sort of try and adapt to the hell they were going through without 10,000 camera crews outside their house. Uh, so it's a myth that it didn't work because it, the name was on Twitter. It did work. Um, it gave them a bit of space. The BBC, I'm afraid, it's the same old pattern. Um, as I say, the kind of disproportionate focus is partly to do with the uh, slavishly nervy, nervy following of whatever the Sun and the Mail are screaming on their front pages each day. It is a fear of the past. You know, they underplayed certain scandals like the Savile scandal, so now they were going to go fully on to this one and show how capable they are of reporting their own internal scandals and so on. Um, so it's, it's again kind of fear-driven, which applies to a lot of the coverage. But there is another kind of thing that struck me as familiar, which was that um, when the parents took their complaints to the BBC in May, they weren't followed up. There was an attempt to follow them up with an email and a phone call, but no contact was made through that. And then they stopped this so-called investigations unit. And they didn't get in touch with Hugh Edwards uh, for his side of the story. And this, again, is a familiar element to virtually every BBC crisis. I'm currently working on a programme, actually, for Radio 4 on the 20th anniversary of the death of David Kelly, which was another huge scandal, uh, crisis, rather, BBC versus the government then, after their reporter Andrew Gilligan did some stuff on whether... Number 10, Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell knowingly put stuff in their dossier on Saddam's WMD that they knew not to be true. Uh, massive allegation made, all hell broke loose, uh, and it ended up in the death of David Kelly, who uh, was the Andrew Gilligan source. And that crisis too, the BBC senior management did not, fully question Andrew Gilligan about what his, he knew and his source uh, with the thoroughness that they should have done in the same way that here they didn't contact Hugh Edwards. Now, I'm sure part of it was, uh, you know, we don't want to disturb uh, a busy news presenter, etc. But boy, would he have preferred to have been disturbed at that point so they could have established some kind of control over the story. 
And um, there's been some speculation that the star is so big and all the rest of it that, that they, you know, almost intimidated by it. But it's not that. It's never that. Within Broadcasting House, people like him are deeply insecure, you know, because managers could decide to oh, we want a 16-year-old to present the 10 o'clock news to get a younger audience, and suddenly you're out of fashion. So there's a great deal of insecurity amongst these so-called stars. Um, the, there's a kind of complacency and laziness, and certainly that was a feature in that one. The Savile one was never... And, and it's about the disconnect between these uh, senior managers and those involved in the output. Um, it's about... Uh, kind of a, a complacency, even though when these stories erupt, there is then panic. And so when The Sun contacted the BBC, all hell broke loose. And, and, and I think they've, they've done okay since, which brings me on to another myth that although they've reported it disproportionately, I mean, everyone has, it's gone out of all proportion. We'll look at that in a second. Um, some people pose the question, can the BBC recover from this crisis? Of course they can. Of all the crises I've followed at the BBC, and I've followed many, uh, this one does not threaten the BBC. Beyond that thing, they have to answer yet again. Why did they handle the initial complaint so slowly with such complacency that they didn't even get in touch with the presenter? The rest of it is not about the BBC in this case. It's a story of uh, human interest. Uh, so it is a story. It's not as big as it has appeared to be. Um, but it's not about the BBC. Why should they know whether Hugh had been in touch with people on a dating agency app? And, and if they didn't, how could they do anything about it? And should they do anything about it? Um, so it is not a crisis which challenges the future of the BBC. It's not about trust because beyond, as I say, the initial uh, typical kind of, oh, there's another complaint, we'll leave it behind. What? Where has trust been broken? Um, Hugh Edwards hadn't lied on air. Um, he continued presenting whilst engaged with these dating apps with uh, a way that commanded respect. Um, so I don't, I don't think, you can't justify the prominence the issue has been given by saying this is all about the BBC and trust. Now, um, in terms of weighing up the significance of the story, it is interesting. We don't know much about it yet, um, that a person you see on screen is immersed in personal activities that seems at odd with that kind of absolutely solid, weighty presence. And that is a human interest story. But We've now reached the kind of point where I think it's very hard for... I mean, presenters now are in the same place that um, politicians are in. You know, politicians for ages now, I mean, if, if they kind of put a foot out of place, all hell could break loose, you know, and cabinet ministers have been resigned for touching someone's knee and uh, have been forced out and so on. Um, uh, clearly, presenters are in that same place now. 
And that means that those who yearn for that level of fame are clearly vulnerable if they pursue kind of what, what do we know? Uh, I was going to say unorthodox, but quite a few people use dating apps. Um, but they, they clearly have got to watch it. And who knows what's going to happen in terms of Hugh Edwards. Um, it is on that level fascinating. I, mean, I, I worked with him as a BBC political correspondent in the 90s. And Boy, was he driven then. It was a very ambitious bunch of political correspondents. It was Jeremy Vine, John Sopel. It was a crazy time. He was by far the most ambitious and clearly yearned for fame. But fame brings about it uh, incredible constraints as well. And it's interesting. I don't think some of the people who achieve that level of fame dare to recognize in a way some of the constraints and that's that's a kind of interesting theme human interest but god the first half of the 10 o'clock news um i don't quite think it's that big so anyway this story will run i think at a much lower volume and in a way while it is uh, desperately sad but wholly unsurprising that he is in hospital with mental health issues I mean, he, he suffers from mental health issues, but anyone, I think, would could well have ended up in hospital after the last five days if they happened to have been the BBC presenter. Um, but it does mean there will be a pause and a sense of perspective will now descend on the story. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise... Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. So, yeah, there we are. We will return to other bigger themes. We should say that the Rock and Roll Politics show I did earlier this week on Tuesday night, uh, we were delving deep and this didn't come up. So there we go. Now, I want to thank some of you who do uh, subscribe to Patreon because that means I can work with the great podmasters, the brilliant team there who uh, preside over the uh, Rock and Roll Politics podcast. Uh, so that makes all of that possible. And I say your bonus uh, th this month will be our live get together. But I also want to thank some of you who are subscribing. Uh, Angus Thomas, Simon Brunskill, Simon Lockyer, Linda Morgan, John McIntosh, Ben Heath, Stephen Jordan, Richard Blackburn, Gillian Charlesworth, Philip Rowe. Thank you very much as Paul McCartney might have said. And thank you. And more names to be read out. And I'm going to hopefully, we're all going to get together on, what is it, Monday week? Something like that uh, for our review of where we are. Uh, but now I'm going to only read out one, one question because uh, this has been a kind of 
a special on the uh, Hugh Edwards saga. And it comes from Jonathan Marcus. Jonathan uh, and I were correspondents together. God, when was it, Jonathan? Late 80s, early 90s? Um, Jonathan was defence correspondent. I was an environment correspondent. Or maybe when we got together, I was a political correspondent. But we used to have great conversations together about everything in that time. Anyway, he's um, posed another interesting point about all of this. It's related to my reflections. Uh, What is all this talk about a BBC investigation? If you fiddle your expenses or bash a colleague on BBC property, fair enough. But if you do something improper off-site with no direct BBC connection, what the heck has it to do with them? If you suspect a potential crime, inform the police. And as for the self-regarding Jeremy Vine, surely his comments on air uh, break every aspect of BBC guidelines, direct comment on his views on a story. Beyond this, it shows the damage the cult of celebrity has done to the BBC and the wider sense of entitlement amongst senior staff on and off air. The whole thing is a sad end to a talented man's career who has worked hard to get to his much-respected position. The BBC's performance has been lamentable, both as an employer and as a news organisation. Once again, as with the Philip Schofield story, it takes its news values from the tabloids. This time it descends into farce, with correspondents coming on repeatedly to go through the motions of journalism when they know, uh, this was before the hue was named, who this presenter is. It's bizarre. Yeah, I was going to mention the Philip Schofield story. uh, Hugh Evers must have been really worried, I assume, when the Schofield story broke, that a frenzy could descend on him at some point. Because I still don't quite know what Schofield did wrong. Uh, Well, uh, he lied, didn't he, about this affair or or whatever. And I suppose lying when you're a presenter reduces your authority. It's like politics. Presenters cast a spell where they are sort of omnipotent and wholly reliable and trustworthy in inverted commas. And I suppose if that's challenged, the whole spell is broken. Um, But that went on for days. And he ended up with an Amal Rajan interview looking terrible and wrecked. Even though I say I'm not entirely sure what the great crime was, in inverted commas. And and, and similarly, there's been a disproportion here. Uh, and the BBC got pretty worked up about the Schofield story. Uh, but this one, um, they've actually absolutely, uh, yeah, gone over the top. Um, anyway, uh, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, there's uh, insight from someone who knows the BBC inside out. Um, and yeah, well, look, we will get together again early next week to reflect on bigger matters. Um, yeah, God, what's been going on this week? That NATO summit, the the whole mortgage situation, the pay review announcements. There's old Sunak in number 10 with his Thatcherite orthodoxies from the 1980s, totally outdated by the challenges and demands of now. Uh, but Uh, trying to cling to them. And indeed, Jeremy Hunt, who is an absolute with that very calm, attractive demeanour 
uh, passionate Osbornite, Thatcherite, uh, rooted in the 1980s in an era which demands so much more. Anyway, um, or a different approach, put it that way. Uh, look, have a great time. Thank you for uh, listening. And let's get together very soon to make sense of it all. And there'll be more of your questions as well. So keep them coming. Steve Rick, 14 at iCloud.com. Take care. Have a good time. Bye.